continuing this morning the sermon series through the Ten Commandments. This morning addressing the Seventh Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And the reading of scripture to uh, accompany that commandment is Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. And it's found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 beginning verse 27. I invite you to open your Bible or one of the few Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 for the Word of God, beginning at verse 27. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of His holy Word. Father, Your Word is truth. Sanctify us in Your truth. Build us up with Your Word. Send forth Your Spirit to accompany the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would press your word upon our hearts so to transform our lives that we might live more truly, more fully, more faithfully as sinners who have been saved by grace to the praise of your glorious name. Through Christ our Savior. Amen. Let us hear the word of God. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. To his name be all praise, honor, and glory. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, takes us back. All the way back. All the way back to the beginning. The very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapters 1 and 2 
of Genesis teach us that in the beginning, God, the true and living, one and only God, the creator of heaven and earth, ordained the institution of marriage. He created the man and woman for each other, for his glory. God officiated at the first wedding ceremony. And the first love song was sung there in the Garden of Eden when Adam first saw his bride. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At the foundation of creation, at the dawn of history, the marriage union of one man and one woman was instituted by God as the basic unit of human society upon which human civilization would be built. God ordained and instituted marriage for the well-being and the happiness of humanity. God ordained and blessed the sexual union of husband and wife for the procreation of children and for the union of the heart and soul and mind of the husband and wife in the bond of love as symbolically embodied in sexual union. All of this, all of this, you see, was part of God's very good creation from the very beginning. Sexual intercourse between husband and wife was part, and a very important part, of God's very, very good sinless creation in the beginning. And we can't really understand or appreciate the seventh commandment without realizing that what the seventh commandment is intended to protect. Intended to protect the precious gift of human sexuality. The precious union of husband and wife. The seventh commandment affirms the inherent goodness of human sexuality as created and intended by God. The seventh commandment affirms the God-ordained institution of marriage. And the seventh commandment was given by God to protect and to promote the marriage bond and therefore to protect and to promote the family unit and therefore the church and therefore human society in general. And on top of all of that, as the letter to the Ephesians reveals to us, the union of husband and wife is a God-given symbolic expression, illustration of the mystical union of Christ and his bride, the church. The union of husband and wife is a picture of our salvation. Through our faith union, our intimate oneness with Jesus Christ. And for this reason, above all others, the union of husband and wife is precious to God. Now, with regard to the seventh commandment, and this principle applies to each one of the commandments as well. You need to understand, you shall not commit adultery 
actually has reference to everything, all sexual behavior that would fall into the category of sexual immorality, all sexual behavior outside the bond of marriage. So we have to understand each one of the commandments as a major category, which includes a variety of specific violations of that particular law. So, for example, the the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, applies to the taking of innocent human life in cases other than, in addition to those defined legally as first-degree murder. In other words, it applies to abortion and infanticide and euthanasia and reckless warfare, war crimes. And and so also the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, as a general category, applies to any and all sexual behavior outside of the marriage bond, premarital sex, what what the Bible calls fornication, which is a good word because it's such an ugly word, homosexual activity, sodomy, prostitution, etc. All of these fall under the category of the Seventh Commandment. Now, I don't need to rehearse for you all the ways in which sexual standards have collapsed in our culture over the last 50 years. But be careful. I don't mean to imply that everyone in America was sexually pure prior to the 1960s. Of course, many were not. Let's not be naive. Let's not fool ourselves. But they knew what the standards were. And they knew that they were breaking them. And they knew that it mattered. Today, 40 years after the so-called sexual revolution, the standards are simply not standards anymore in our culture. What used to be rebellion against the standards is now simply the new normal. And we are told it does not matter. Well, really? Does it really not matter? Do things such as broken hearts and broken homes not matter? What about dead end relationships? in which everything is given, but nothing lasts except the pain and regret. What about physical disease and emotional wounds? Do they matter? What about fatherless children? Do they matter? What about aborted children? Do they matter? The seventh commandment matters because God is good and God's law is for our good. His law is a law of love given in love so that we might live lives filled with love. His law is the law of liberty given so that we might live in true liberty. Liberty, liberty from the pain and misery which inevitably result. Inevitably. 
from sinful behavior. But there's something else at stake, equally important. Obedience to the law of God is not merely a matter of avoiding pain and misery. It is a matter of glorifying God and living our lives to the full as He intends us to live. God calls us to glorify Him in the good and right and holy, pure expression of sexuality within marriage. This glorifies God. God gave us fire to warm our homes, not to burn them down. God gave us a good gift to be treasured, not trashed. And the challenges we and our children, our grandchildren face in 21st century America are really no different, no different at all from the same challenges Christians faced in the first century Roman Empire. The first century Greco-Roman culture was filled with all manner of sexual immorality. Now, the funny thing is, if you think about this, this is kind of funny. The funny thing is, is that those who say, let's think about it. Would you just think about this for a minute? The funny thing is, is that those who say that Bible-believing Christians are just old-fashioned, on this subject, you know, they really ought to think again. I mean, sexual immorality is not exactly anything new itself. And to those who would suggest that the Christian church, and, and there are those who would suggest that the Christian church really needs to adapt and conform to the standards of contemporary culture in order to be able to relate to and reach out to contemporary culture. I would simply say, well, that's not what the Holy Spirit says in Scripture. That's not what God said to the first century Christians. To Christians living in a culture like ours, awash in sexual immorality, the Holy Spirit, speaking in Scripture, says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you, Ephesians chapter 5. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other person, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And then let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The letter to the Hebrews. Now the point, in quoting all of this scripture, is to show you that the first century Christians were called to live sexually pure and holy lives in the midst of a sexually immoral culture. And in fact, this was an important distinction between Christians and non-Christians in the first century. It mattered greatly. And the same is true for Christians in 21st century America. It is to be an important distinction between Christians and non-Christians. It does matter. But now we've got to take it one step further.
and a lot deeper. You shall not commit adultery is a commandment not only for our bodies, but also for our hearts. Adultery, like murder, is a matter of the heart, a spiritual issue. God looks upon the heart, and the law of God judges the secrets of the heart. And even if we have never committed literal physical adultery, we are nevertheless found guilty under the law of God. How can I say that? Because Jesus said it. Listen again to his words in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your body go into hell. Well, there it is. Jesus said it. Do we believe it? Jesus applies the law of God to our lives internally, spiritually. In other words, it's not enough merely to obey the commandments externally, physically. Jesus demands internal and spiritual obedience as well. Jesus teaches us to guard our hearts and our minds. And the hyperbolic figure of speech about tearing out our eye or cutting off our hand is Jesus' way of telling us how serious this issue is and how seriously he takes it. And though this is addressed to men concerning women, surely it works the other way. Perhaps in the case of women, it might be more a matter of emotional lust than physical lust. Jesus teaches us to guard our hearts and minds. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And think about this. Think about the modesty with which first century Middle Eastern women clothed themselves. I mean, you can see it on the news today. Women covered up in complete modesty. What we consider to be odd, there was still the warning about lust. So, so think about what we live with today. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. As if lustful images on prime time television and mainstream movies were not enough. The internet is now an open sewer flowing from hell and back to hell. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clearly said that even the thoughts of adultery and lustful imagination were worthy of condemnation in hell. 
That's how precious the marriage bond is to God. That's how precious the sexual union of husband and wife is to God. So precious to God that those who even imagine violating it are guilty and in danger of being sentenced to hell. Jesus said it. How are we doing? How are we doing? To whatever degree we may have kept the seventh commandment, we all know, I hope, that none of us has kept it according to Jesus' standard of true righteousness. So where does that leave us? We who are adulterers one way or another. Now once again, the law of God reveals our sinfulness and points us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. The law of God proves to us that we cannot be saved by works of the law because none of us has kept the law of God perfectly as he requires. We can be saved only by someone who has kept the law of God fully, truly, and perfectly. And that someone is Jesus Christ, the faithful one, the one true lover who gave up himself for us to die in the place of adulterers. Psalm 51 is a model prayer of confession. We prayed portions of it this morning in our prayer of confession. The prayer, it is the prayer of an adulterer and a murderer. The prayer of David after the prophet Nathan confronted him about his adultery with Bathsheba and his plot to have her husband Uriah killed in battle. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, that's what true confession sounds like. No defenses, no excuses, no explanations, no justifications. Just naming your sin, saying it out loud, acknowledging that you deserve God's wrath, Acknowledging that God's judgment is just and therefore pleading for mercy, free and undeserved mercy. But true confession also pleads for new life, new faith, new purity with a new resolve to walk away from our sins and toward a grateful obedience. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Psalm 51 teaches us, adulterers, one way or another, how to pray for forgiveness, trusting in the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from our sins and seeking the grace of the Holy Spirit to renew our lives for faithful obedience. David's experience has a parallel in the New Testament, except there it concerns an unknown woman. 
The account of the woman caught in adultery found in John chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, good men of the community, brought her to Jesus and said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? It was a trap. It was a setup in which they were trying to trick Jesus into contradicting the law of Moses. Now, presumably, they thought that Jesus would say something to try to get the woman off the hook, something which did not fully uphold the law of God, and then they would accuse him of teaching against the law. Then they'd have something against him. But at first, Jesus didn't say anything. Do you remember the story? John tells us that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. I want you to see that in your mind's eye. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now listen carefully, listen very carefully to the way John tells us that. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. Was he just doodling? Think about it. Exodus 31.18 tells us that the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone were written, quote, with the finger of God. That invisible finger, that invisible finger which had written the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai became visible in the flesh and blood finger of Jesus Christ. The scribes and Pharisees had asked Jesus a trick question about the law of God. They did not know who they were dealing with. They did not know that they were face to face with the one who had written the law on Sinai. And in this account, we see how Jesus Christ, the lawgiver, deals with helpless, hopeless sinners who look to him for mercy. First of all, note, Jesus made no excuses for this woman. She was guilty. Jesus offered her no defense. He did not dispute the fact that under Old Testament law, she deserved to die. And he did not object to that law. He did not act as her defense attorney. He acted as her Savior. And he showed her and her accusers that the God of justice who wrote the law is also the God of grace who saves sinners who cast themselves upon him for mercy. John tells us that as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, now listen to that. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Okay, that's what the law says. Have at it. Now, most people focus on that question and that quote 
to say that no one has the right to make moral judgments on another person. You hear that all the time. But listen, that misses the point completely. That totally misses the point of this passage. I want you to think about this. Was there anyone there who was without sin? Was there anyone there who could have cast the first and the last stone? Was there a sinless man there? And the answer is, yes, there was. The one who wrote that law with his finger. Jesus was the one who was without sin, and he is the one who could have, yes, justly cast the first stone. Now, now to get the point, really, to get the point, you've got to see yourself in the face of that woman. There you are. Jesus could have thrown stone upon stone upon stone, but he didn't. Because the God of holy justice is also the God of undeserved mercy. Who came into the world to suffer the judgment we deserve in our place. To die under the condemnation we deserve as our substitute for the forgiveness of our sins and our redemption into new and everlasting life. That's what forgiveness means. Standing guilty before the lawgiver and receiving His mercy. After the men dropped the stones and walked away, Jesus was alone with the woman. And he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Jesus did not condemn her because he knew that he himself would be condemned for her. The lawgiver would give himself to suffer in the place of the lawbreaker. The faithful one, the true love, would bear the guilt of the adulterer. He would die for her sins so that she could live a new life set free from her sins. He would rise from the dead so that she too, through faith in Him, could live a new life free from the power of sin. He forgave her. He set her free. He gave her new birth. He called her to follow Him in a new life of purity and holiness. That is the Gospel. That is the good news for you and me. Can you see yourself in the face of this woman? Listen, she is a picture. This unknown, unnamed adulteress is a picture of the church, the bride of Christ. 
Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to sanctify her, to cleanse her of every spot and wrinkle that she should be presented before Him holy and blameless in His sight. That's who we are if we are in Christ. That is what He does for each one of us, for every one of us who turns to Him in faith for the forgiveness of our sins. His death on the cross satisfies the justice of God against all our sins. His resurrection from the dead gives new life by the power of the Holy Spirit to all who will follow Him in faith. Believe Him. Believe in Him. Believe Him who wrote the law on tablets of stone with His finger at Sinai, who doodled in the dust in Jerusalem. Believe His word of no condemnation and begin to live a new life for His glory. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your mercy and the greatness of your grace. We thank you that you loved us even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. And that in Christ, you have saved us by your grace and raised us up to live as your people. Impress your word on our hearts, sanctify our lives, and enable us to follow you more faithfully with joy and thanksgiving to the glory of your name.